Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm John Fusco. I'm Eric Lures. And today is October 4th, 2018. On this week's show, Monsters. And as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. That's right. This week, we're talking about monsters. That's right. It's officially October, so tis the season. Tis the season to talk monsters. But uh, actually, none of the monsters we're talking about have anything to do with horror movies. <laughs> no, these are just real life monsters. Real life uh, monsters. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not the good kind. Uh, if there is a good kind, and I'm not talking about the guy at the New York Film Festival who has been behind me, sitting behind me, uh, on more than one occasion, and just outright lambasting every movie that he sees during the Q and A. Really? Yeah. And he keeps sitting right behind he you keeps specifically, right behind me. During these Q&A sessions, he's just delivering sarcastic remarks to his wife uh, in whispers, sometimes in whispers, sometimes in like full-blown conversation. Uh-huh. And I'm just like, dude, if you don't like the movie, why are you staying for the Q&A? Just, yeah. just leave. And why is he always choosing to sit behind you? Or are know. you choosing to sit in front of him? Do you, uh, do you see him before the screening? Or well, does he just show up for the Q&A? This is interesting. I'm actually <laughs> interested in what your, what your uh, like preferred festival seating is. Uh, is uh, you know we get we've talked a little bit about how like liquids can uh, influence your decision on where to sit, uh, you know. But... <laughs> That's true, especially at some adult theaters. Yes, yeah, yes. I don't sit down at those. So I uh, I I always sit on the side in the back uh, because it provides me with an easy exit. Uh, strategy, but what do you like? I think that's it's great to be on an aisle. I think too, just being a little bit taller, just to stretch out the legs a little bit. I always, I'm pretty OCD about not leaving for so I'll, you know, as, as I'm sure most of us are. But I mean, just like using the restroom beforehand and not drinking beforehand or, or even during water. It's just like I don't really ever leave, um, but I still prefer the aisle just because it does give a little more stretch out opportunity. I think that I am the same way, and uh, when I my like when I sit in the middle, my OCD like kicks in so hard that I just start thinking about going to the bathroom all the time. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So like, I'm, I like to sit on the aisle. I very rarely, if ever, actually end up leaving, but it just makes me feel like less uh, um, afraid. Yeah, and I, and I feel like if you're someone in the center, I just feel like I'm being watched a little bit more i, I don't know because you know the light from the screen is projecting almost literally onto you um that's that a very just, romantic image i just think about this is uh this is how they got lincoln you know that's, that's true that's if you take anything away from this episode lincoln got killed because the light shined on him yep and he was sitting in the middle so hey mm-hmm. uh now moving on to the headlines <laughs> uh we're gonna talk about something uh a, a movie that uh, for the past six or seven months, people have been pondering uh, how it will actually turn out. Uh, And I'm talking about Sony's beginning of a new chapter in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Venom. Is it in the Cinematic Universe? It's Sony's Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, okay. So they're starting, actually they're trying to start a new one, and it was just revealed that Jared Leto will be playing some new comic book person to in the same universe as Venom. Oh, okay. Uh, for all you Jared Leto fans out there. He went from being the Joker to now being in the Marvel Universe? 
Yeah, well, you know. Sacrilege. Uh, so anyways, Friday, we will all see what will either be a comic book rebirth or what one entertainment outlet described as a flying turd in the wind. To be fair, that's a quote from the trailer. Yeah. Uh, so I will go on record here and admit that when I first heard there would be a Venom movie starring Tom Hardy, I got maybe a tiny bit excited, overexcited even. Uh, the truth is that this is one of my favorite actors playing one of my favorite comic book villains, so I had high hopes. Um, and then the first trailer dropped, and all my friends started to make fun of me. But I still thought, you know, if anyone could pull this off, Tom Hardy can, and that the symbiote CGI uh, actually looked kind of cool. Did what did you think about that symbiote CGI? I don't. Yeah, I didn't mind that. I didn't think that was too cheap looking. Yeah, I, that is something where I think CGI enhances it. Uh, it wouldn't be him in prosthetics, I, I guess. Right. Um, so. This week, however, it became clear that my friends were probably right (laughs) and that this is a troubled project. Uh, I'd heard very little about how the film was being received up until this point, and I think that the embargo was lifted last night. Uh, So it's not a stretch to think that Sony was holding on to reviews until the very last minute because most of them are going to be negative. When footage from press junkets finally started trickling out online a couple days ago, Sony had some bigger problems to fry, however. And that's because in an interview with comicbook.com, Tom Hardy admitted that his favorite 30 or 40 minutes of the film had been left in the edit bay. When asked what was your favorite scene to film, Hardy said, quote, Things that aren't in the movie. There are like 30 to 40 minutes worth of scenes that aren't in this movie. All of them. Mad puppeteering scenes, dark comedy scenes, you know what I mean? They just never made it in. End quote. This didn't help calm rumors that the film's executive producer, Matt Talmack, ordered the film's most shocking scenes to be cut to ensure it would receive a PG-13 certificate in the U.S. And this has come as a shock for many fans, uh, I guess including myself, given director Ruben Fleischer's initial teases that the movie would be, quote, the most violent Marvel release to date. I think we all wanted to see that uh, R-rated version happen, Uh, including Hardy, who reportedly improvised a scene where he jumps into a lobster tank at a restaurant to attack the crustaceans. He was getting real into it. Yeah. Was he in Venom character then, or is he... I don't know. But that that scene apparently... I think that that scene made it into the film, so uh, we'll find out. In order to make sure Venom was rated PG-13, Fleischer told Polygon he shot the more violent aspects of the film, such as a few head bites, and a scene involving a symbiote's massacre of a Chinese village from multiple angles as to ensure he could put together an edit that did not tip it over into R-rated territory. The director said he was influenced by Christopher Nolan and pushing the PG-13 boundary without going over into R. He also said he worked closely with the MPAA to figure out the ways he could maximize his PG-13 rating. Rather than cutting out all the gore in the film, for instance, Fleischer worked with his post-production team to tweak the viscosity and color of the blood. The difference between bright red blood and dark soaked through blood actually helped Fleischer maintain a PG-13 rating. And I think I've heard this before, that if blood is, like, super red, then it'll tip it into R-rated. Really? Yeah, but if it's, like, a different color, so if it's, like, green or black or whatever, then it helps it uh, maintain a lower rating. You could almost say, like, oh, it's ooze. Yeah. It's not blood at that point. Exactly. Get away with it. But speaking of Hardy's improvisations, the actor later backtracked on his previous statement in an interview with IGN where he ensured, quote, What I'm saying is that I had a lot of time improvising and a lot of time playing with Venom, so in honesty, there's probably about seven hours or more of the footage with me playing as Venom and enjoying myself. 
I took him right out there and played with it and had a lot of fun because there's a lot of fun you can have with the project and with this character, and I've done that. And me and the other executive producers know full well that has nothing to do with the story, but nevertheless, would I like to watch a seven-hour version of Venom? Yep, but that's just me as an actor. But the truth of it is, everything that we wanted is in the story. Everything I want is in the story and and more, and the film is awesome, and I'm excited, and I just want to shoot a sequel. Yeah, that sounds totally sincere. <laughs> yeah. Totally, totally sincere after his first comments. Especially that last, I love that last comment, I just want to shoot a sequel. If I could get paid for that, that would also be nice. So whether or not that sequel ends up happening is unclear for now, as early reviews range from it's bad to it's not as bad as I thought it would be and at least entertaining. It's an interesting case study for how the superhero genre may advance in any case. Rated R entries like Logan and Deadpool have been unmitigated success stories for Sony, and it seems like they may now be taking a step backwards with this whole PG-13 Venom thing. Is it is it too late? I can't believe when actors... I love the honesty, but promoting the film, and they, they're they asked, what was your favorite scenes in the film? And he says, well, they're not in there anymore. Yeah, uh, that's crazy. I, I just feel like even while you're saying that, you'd say, oh, you know what? I should probably not do this. Well, it's hard because they, they he hasn't even probably been a part of the editing process. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. what? He probably didn't see a lot of the scenes that were cut, I guess. I Unless guess he had access to like a three-hour version of Venom. I, I remember, um, I think it was like 10 years ago, The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton. Didn't he try to get like into the editing room because he was like a hardcore Hulk fan and I tried to change the cut or something like that? That was a whole thing as well. But uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how this works out. Michelle Williams is the love interest, but she seems to not even be spoken about really. <laughs> it's just Michelle Williams in there, you know? Uh, it's, uh, it's reminiscent of like people are comparing it to like there being a Zack Snyder director's cut of what, what movie? Was it Watchmen or I think it was Sucker Punch? Justice League or like, oh, okay. Yeah, one of the troubled, maybe it was Batman versus Superman. Uh, but yeah, they're saying that there's a Tom Hardy <laughs> cut of venom seven hours yeah i'd like to see it yeah maybe um well if we could just stay on the subject of venom for (laughs) one moment please uh i hope you guys are interested in venom i hope well this is kind this is almost in the abstract about venom uh reviews as john mentioned broke last night and have been rather negative but the question is where are some of those reviews coming from and are they coming from real people So last week, you may have heard that at least 50% of the negative user reviews for The Last Jedi were actually created by Russian bots. Uh, And it's a crazy story that you can look into more online. Uh, And this week, something similar may have happened as well. Now, not from Russia, but at least not yet from Russia. Who knows? The Kremlin could still come in there. Um, As Variety reports, despite the fact that A Star is Born, which is also opening on Friday, has already drummed up significant hype, garnering a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and awards buzz, Gaga's fan base, it sounds weird to say that, Gaga's fan base is apparently taking it upon themselves to make sure the movie gets as much opening day attention as Venom. Once the social media embargo for Venom broke following the superhero movie's red carpet premiere, some Twitter users noticed negative reviews floating around Twitter. But it was noted that many of these critics used the exact same wording. Huh. So that's that's you know not only that's plagiarism or is it just a, a machine making up these tweets? Uh, one tweet that seems to be copy and pasted from several accounts reads. I am the biggest Marvel fan, but I just watched hashtag Venom, and I don't know what to say. Uh, and I think that's a positive. Yeah. Uh, when reached by BuzzFeed, one of the accounts who shared a fake negative review of Venom told the outlet, it's us Gaga fans, who I believe are called Little Monsters, right? Is that Aren't they monsters? Maybe. I think her fans oh. are called Little Monsters. Because isn't there a song? 
I think there's right? some song that she sings. Yeah. I think they're monsters. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's us Gaga fans creating fake IDs to trash the Venom premiere and get a beer or something. Uh, <laughs> fake IDs. <laughs> they both are getting released on the same day, so we want more audience for A Star is Born. Uh, I just found this some feud somewhat hilarious as if either film needs the other one to fail in order for the other one to become successful. If they are truly bots making these negative reviews for Venom and vice versa, uh, I saw one on Fandango, a user review, where it's like, I think with A Star is Born, there is, if you buy a ticket through Fandango, you get a free digital download of a song release, which is a much better deal than Venom. And I was like, where the hell did that comparison come from? So some of them are a little bit more blatant than others. Um, but still, this should probably all be for naught. Both will do quite well this weekend. A Star is Born is having, you know, going to have the staying power that will last the reward season. And Venom is getting trashed, too, by real critics, which reminds me a little bit of the Movie Pass production of Gotti, where they had a bunch of fake accounts created just to positively review Gotti. Uh, and no fake positive reviews are going to change an audience's opinion on it. Uh, I, I just find that funny because A Star is Born has somehow miraculously become this like huge anticipated blockbuster uh over the past few weeks and it's going to maybe even do better than venom which who could have predicted that if yeah you yeah it's possible um especially if this campaign works out i mean i think the smear campaign <laughs> if venom bombs it's we should probably look towards gaga and bradley cooper you know just for for say, saying some bad stuff about it i think that you know if, if venom bombs what the studio execs really need to consider is a crossover uh, Venom v Gaga. Oh, a, a symbiote maybe. is born. A symbiote is born. Yeah, is hatched. Maybe yeah. Maybe symbiote takes on uh, Lady Gaga. Imagine. That. Oh God, that would be cool. Oh, could you imagine Tom Hardy in the Bradley Cooper role of A Star Is Born? You know, I'm yeah. thinking about it now. <laughs> actually, both ways. I'm thinking about it. Yeah, so Tom Hardy would have to do Star Is Born. Actually, no. Tom Hardy would have to play Lady Gaga in A Star <laughs> right. Is Born, and Lady Gaga would have to play Tom Hardy in Venom. Oh, uh, I, I would see that. That would be cool. Lady yeah. Gaga is Venom. So, studio execs, make it happen. I know yeah. you're listening. Anyways, our last piece of news doesn't really have much to do with actual movies or filmmaking, but it's, I think, interesting nonetheless and something that we as filmmakers should maybe pay attention to. New York Comic Con was this week, and there was a study released surrounding the event that may not as I said, directly have to do with filmmakers, but I think maybe many of you could be interested in this, especially as video games continue to enter the same level of immersion as film. The study, conducted by Fullscreen, its Rooster Teeth division, and consumer research firm Majid, found that 42% of so-called power gamers, or those who play for 10 or more hours per week on a PC or gaming console, are parents. And power gamers also tend to have considerable spending power. Fullscreen found that they make two times as much discretionary income, $488, as non-gamers, $210. And discretionary income refers to income remaining after taxes and other personal necessity expenditures. So does that mean that being an avid gamer can help you save money? I guess so. And now it's kind of also a signal of success. 40% of the power gaming community studied graduated from college, and 68% are employed. Gamers are also more active on social media, more likely to share new products and trends with their friend networks, and enjoy talking about brands on social media more than their non-gamer counterparts. They are also more likely to want to own a home and to want to have children. Wanna, isn't that weird? <laughs> Damn, and that's so. And if you don't play video games at all, you've 
Jeez, I'm screwed. You have no chance. I'm screwed. At a normal life. Oh, God. One of the most surprising findings is the sharp rise in adults who play, including the many parents who say they are big gamers, which means that the potential for an inexorable link between filmmaking and video games may be closer than we think. It just needs someone to find out how to take advantage of that connection. Do we, we don't know their professions, right? Or what kind of... No. Okay. No. Because I'm wondering, are they doctors? Are they more than 10 hours? What was it more than 10 hours a week for power gaming? More than 10 hours a week, yeah. Wow. Maybe they make money by playing. I don't know. Right? Maybe no, not. No, Maybe I not. Think so. no. I think okay. it's just not competitive uh, gaming or anything like that. But for whoever can figure out how to bring like filmmaking into gaming in a way. You watch like 10 hours of movies a week, you're making more money on average than people who don't watch movies? I don't know. I think that that connection is going to be a big uh, link sometime in the future. Anyways, for more gear news, here's Charles Hain. Hey, this is Charles Hain. I'm here with Tech and Gear News. So our top tech news story this week is the Monster Chrome. I am personally particularly excited about the Monster Chrome, not just because I love a portmanteau, Although, as my wife will tell you, I really do love a portmanteau. No, I'm really excited about this because I love that RED releases official monochrome versions of their cameras. Wait, hold on. Let's back up. What is the Monstro Chrome, you ask? So, the Monstro is RED's massive full-frame sensor-sized cinema camera, right? We've all been hearing about that. It's 8K resolution. It's got a big old sensor, so you need lenses with a big image circle, and it's putting out some beautiful imagery. Monochrome is when they release a camera without any color filters on the pixels on the sensor. Actually, it's on the photosites on the sensor, not the pixels. Pixels are in the video, not on the sensor. This gives the camera a slight benefit in low light, but it really improves the clarity of the image. The reason why is that most camera sensors have a series of little red, green, and blue filters on the sensor, which divide each photosite into a different color, and then they record those colors, and all of that data gets processed using algorithms into a full-color image. Which means an 8K sensor, it doesn't have like 30% that resolution, right? The algorithms are pretty sophisticated, but it has a little less than 8K resolution, say 6, 6.5K in actual measurable resolution. But an 8K monochrome sensor will have 8K resolution. There are no filters. Each photosite records perfect brightness info and brightness info alone and you get this clean, crisp, beautiful image at the full 8K sensor resolution. Now, you can often buy an aftermarket modified monochrome camera, but RED are really the only big company out there that actually release a monochrome version to the public and it is awesome and there is beautiful stuff shot with them all the time. We wonder if they are soon going to release a monochrome for the Gemini, which is their low-light camera, which would be super exciting. But for now, the Monstra Chrome is super cool, and we can't wait to start seeing Project Shot with it or get our hands on it for some testing. Next up, some news from Flanders Scientific, uh, who are a company out of Atlanta, and they make color grading monitors and pretty much nothing else. All the other people who make color grading equipment also do all sorts of other things, whereas Flanders is really the monitoring people. That is their jam. Their new releases, there's all sorts of stuff. There's a $55,000 monitor, which is like, I'm glad it exists. We will, probably most of us will not end up working on it. But they released these two larger monitors, which is interesting because Flanders is mostly focused 24 inches and below before. But now they're doing a 55-inch and a 65-inch OLED color grading monitor, and that are around like 10 to 12 grand each. 
that's still too much for most of us to buy, but it's actually sort of like a reasonable price for a post house and for the performance you're going to get out of them, they're going to be really useful in color suites. So it's possible or likely that you're going to end up working on one of them on a project sometime soon. Now, of course, LG also has the C8, which is an OLED monitor available, 55-inch and 65-inch, and it allows you to load a 3D LUT. But with the Flanders, which I believe are built around the same panels, you're going to see a whole lot more features that make them post-house friendly. So you're going to see SDI inputs and outputs, scopes, uh, an ability to work with the overall pipeline a little bit better. You're going to see better color processing. You're going to see calibration from the factory. But they've got a real uphill battle. Those LGs are everywhere. Uh, the school where I teach has two of them already. I just calibrated another at another school, and they look really good. So it's going to be interesting to see how these play out in the market if people are going to be willing to pay the upgrade uh, for the Flanders Touch for all that beautiful processing that you get out of a Flanders. Last, but holy cow, definitely not least, they have price bumped their previous top-of-the-line model, which was the DM250, which was a 24-inch OLED, and it is like the gold standard. It's the monitor I work with most often, and it went from $8,000 to $10,000, and now they're asking $25,000 for it. Wait, what? Why? Well, Flanders doesn't really make their own panels. They do the processing around it, all of the hardware and the circuitry and all of that. The panel, which they don't make, isn't being made by the manufacturer anymore. Flanders is really excited about some other new technologies that are coming down the pike, and I think they were hoping that they would already be available in this price point, but they're not. And Flanders doesn't want to discontinue the model, so they raise the price to slow down sales without stopping them entirely. But why don't they just want to discontinue it? Why not just sell it out at $10,000? Well, according to a fun discussion on Reddit, not only will some people probably end up paying $25,000 for it because it's a great monitor, Flanders also knows that when an item is discontinued, its rental rate often goes down. Even if it's still a great monitor, even if it's still cutting edge, even if it's still the gold standard, the price just drops a little bit. And they don't want to officially discontinue it since they don't want their customers who like recently bought it, it's only been out a couple of years, to notice their rental income go down to be able to not charge as much for it, even though it's still so great. So they are keeping it in stock by raising the price so much that the sales rate goes down. I, I think it's a really classy move. I think it's very considerate of Flanders. They're also allowing users with like an AM250 or CM250, which are built on the same panel but had less sophisticated hardware, to send in those uh, monitors and get them upgraded to the two DM250 hardware for a low cost. So that's another way that they're getting DM250s out in the field. And then if you wanted, you could trade in your current DM250 in order to get, I think, up to $7,500 off the cost of an XM55 or 65. So Flanders is doing a lot to keep DM250s officially in stock, keep them out in the field, keep them in people's hands. I think it's a really nice customer service move. And, um, very excited to see the XM55s and 65s in color suite soon. Last but not least, Aperture has started shipping the Aperture 120 Mark II. We first saw it back at NAB in April, and we got to play with it a little bit. And the marquee improvement, the one they are pushing hardest, is the 30% brighter output for the same power draw. And that's huge. 30% more power, drawing the same electricity, totally great. 
But we were actually more impressed. We got to play with it a little bit in the last couple of weeks. We've been more impressed with the little hardware tweaks. They made the yoke that locks down the lights angle uh, dramatically stronger. It used to be this little plastic thing, and now it's this big metal thing. And, you know, if you're putting a sock, soft box in the front, you need a strong yoke. The Mark I didn't have one, so often you'd put on a big soft box and it would drip. We put on a six-foot drop box. We locked it down with that metal yoke. It stayed perfectly in place for a shoot. It was great. They also really unified the cabling, getting rid of one of the cable warts, which is super appreciated. And they are now shipping these new barn doors as a separate accessory, which is the first barn doors I've run across lined with velvet. Is this a thing that like other people do and I've missed? I don't think I've ever seen this. Uh, let me know on Twitter. I'm at Charles Hain if this is a thing other people do. But for me, it's the first time I've seen velvet line barn doors. I think the idea is that it's going to make a harder cut line by preventing internal reflections. Um, it looks really cool. It is soft to the touch. We put it on the unit. It's a hard cut line. You get out of the um, barn door, but we don't have like a we don't have two identical velvet and not velvet barn doors, so we can't do a scientific comparison, but it is pretty cool. Along with that, they've updated a whole bunch of their other accessories, including the light dome. It's now way easier. It, like, pops open like an umbrella. If anybody remembers how hard it was to set up the original light dome, major improvement from Aperture. Back with Ask No Film School, D. Robards asks, I'm a writer-director, and I'm working a full-time 40, 50 hours a week job. I balance my work and my directing and writing, and I usually use my own money to fund my movies. I've always wanted to get into freelance life, but I keep feeling less and less interested in doing so, mostly because of how slowly money could be coming in for a few months. I was wondering, is it essential to go freelance? Or could I make it in a full-time job while also making movies and writing? So, D, there's a ton of variables here to navigate. First off, no, if you are happy with the creative outlet right now that you have, you don't have to quit your job. William Carlos Williams was a doctor into his 60s, and T.S. Eliot worked in a bank. You can keep your day job and stay creative. Of course, both those examples are writers, and there are more examples of writers who keep their day jobs and found a way to write around that day job and keep moving forward with their projects. Directing is trickier because it involves shoots, and shoots involve teams of people working together, and teams of people need to coordinate schedules, and that can be hard with a day job. Like, with a day job and you're writing, you might write for an hour every morning before you go to work, and it never gets in the way of work. But you can't really, like, direct your movie for an hour every day in the morning before you go to work unless you're working on, like, a doc. But for, like, a narrative thing, usually what happens is you get together for 10 or 12 hours and shoot all in a row, which is hard to do on a work day. But you say in your question, you are already balancing directing in your day job. So why not keep going at that until you are getting so much directing work that quitting your day job makes financial sense? Generally in life, it's good to stay in one boat until the next one arrives. Sometimes you do need to jump out of the safe ship in order to make sure you can swim before the next boat arrives. But it sounds to me like you're making things. It doesn't sound to me like you're like, I'm comfortable in my day job and not doing anything. And in that case, we'd say you got to like make some moves. But if you have your day job and you are making stuff, that sounds awesome. If your goal is to eventually be a full-time director, you will eventually have to quit that job. And freelance does bring in less regular cash flow than a day job. The biggest thing I can recommend you doing right now is working on building a cash reserve like two months of monthly expenses and a cash hoard readily available to you so that you don't need to give up that regular paycheck. But 
when you give up that regular paycheck, when it happens, your freelance jobs will often take a while to pay. Sometimes they'll take two months to pay. And you'll have that cash reserve to take care of you during that time. So whatever you can do to save up while you have that regular paycheck and build that cash reserve now so that when you do go freelance, you've got some stuff to get you through those painful times when a client takes 60 days to pay, you're better positioned to do it. Also, keep making your stuff. Keep going. And, uh, yeah, great question. Thank you for getting in touch. All right, everybody, I'll see you all next week. And now on to some movies opening this week. On Amazon Prime Instant, you can check out A Prayer Before Dawn on October 6th. John Stephane Souvar. Is that how I say it, Eric? I will allow that pronunciation. I believe it's Gene Stephanie, but I will allow how you said it. Gene Stephanie Suver <laughs> directed this film based off a true story that's had wide critical acclaim this year. And Max Winter, one of our writers who uh, interviewed the film's DP, David Ungaro, had this to say about the film. Quote, The greatest strength of A Prayer Before Dawn is its immediacy. The film is less like a narrative than a VR experience. Following a young, raffish boxer named Billy Moore, played with restrained seething energy by Joe Malone, as he is arrested for drug possession in Bangkok, thrown in prison, and forced to find his way out through Muay Thai boxing competitions. To say the camera hugs the characters would be an understatement. We follow their largest and smallest movements through jail cells, boxing rings, bathrooms, bars, and on the street. End quote. For added authenticity, they actually filmed the movie in a previously abandoned Thai prison, and many of the extras in the film are actual ex-convicts. To read more about the movie and the DP, you can check out the interview on the site. If only he would have interviewed the ex-convicts. Yeah. Now that would have been something worth reading. I mean, maybe this is too. Oh, this is totally worth reading. Okay. And on Netflix, you can check out Private Life on October 5th. As many of you know, we've been at the New York Film Festival for the past few weeks, and now you can take a little piece of the action home with you with this film, which is currently screening at the festival itself. Private Life is Tamara Jenkins' first film since 2007's Savages. In it, an author played by Katherine Hahn is undergoing multiple fertility therapies to get pregnant, putting her relationship with her husband, played by Paul Giamatti, on edge. And out now on Hulu is RBG, which is one of our colleague Liz's favorite films of the year. And we've spoken about this one quite a bit, but it's good that's out now. There with the Senate hearings and all that stuff yeah, going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it feels very appropriate. Um, RBG, of course, stands for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. If you already know and love the no-nonsense Supreme Court justice, you will still learn surprising things about her storied career and personal life. And if you don't already know or love her, it's hard not to fall in love after watching this. Liz previously had interviewed filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen on our No Film School interview podcast called How Niche Filmmaking Can Move Your Career Ahead. And Liz also interviewed the filmmakers back at Sundance. And one of the most amazing behind-the-scenes stories is that they didn't know at the beginning whether they would actually be able to get an interview with Ginsburg herself. They reached out to her, and first of all, she's elderly, and so her time is protected. But secondly, she has a very specific schedule with Supreme Court hearings. So yes, she is still working at the age of 85. So she said, I can schedule an interview with you in two years. Which that, that, I hear that line a lot when I apply for jobs. Uh, so they proceeded anyway, and exactly two years later, when the film was almost done, they finally got the interview with her and were able to cut it in. Um, and that we can you can read that interview, and it's titled "RBG: Directors Betsy West and Julie Cohn on Capturing the Life and Legacy of an Icon." 
And opening in theaters on October 5th is David Lowry's The Old Man and the Gun, uh, which is a really fun and lighthearted movie starring Robert Redford in what may or may not be his final role. Uh, I believe he just turned 82 years old. Uh, your parents will love this, <laughs> and mine included. I think. What if know, there are parents out there listening to the show? Then they, they like would, then if you are parents and you are <laughs> game power gamers and you love Bobby Redford, stop then, playing video games and get out to the fucking movie. Apparently, theater. you're making enough money you can buy a ticket to this thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's very it's very good and lighthearted. Uh, we spoke about it a little bit on last week's podcast in our words of wisdom section. Uh, I had spoken with the editor Lisa Churgan, and this week Oakley Anderson Moore, our writer, spoke with the director David Lowry about the bigger picture of the film, if you will. Um, in case you forgot, Redford reteams here with David Lowry after 2017's Pete's Dragon, starring as Forrest Tucker, who's an obsessive bank robber who's just so charming, and he gets away with it all the time. Uh, and that's one of the many charms of Lowry's film, which is a cross between a octogenarian love story and a pulp crime drama, with detective played by Casey Affleck hot on the smooth geezer's conniving trail. This is very fun, it's breezy, and surprisingly poignant at times, and it was shot on film, so yay for that. Uh, it's also a good Texas film. As loyal listeners know, we're big fans of Texas, uh, Austin Part, specifically. Parts of Texas. Not all <laughs> parts. I should I should specify that. You know, the politics of Texas and some other things. Not nah, Texas. We we'll, we like all you filmmakers out yeah, of Texas. Yeah, except for Waco. You know? Needs, needs, no, no offense to anyone listening in Waco. I just <laughs> feel like, you know, I don't know. You've had a rough history. Uh, but, yes, it takes place in Texas, shot there, and it's very authentic. So check it out. It's light and fun. And as we mentioned earlier in the show, A Star is Born is also coming out on October 5th. I was really surprised to overhear people outright praising this film at TIFF at nearly every single screening I went to. Apparently, I listened a lot. I, you know, I hear a lot of things around me when I'm sitting in movie theaters. Yeah, I, I there's so some chatterboxes that you I, sit really, around. I, I get really like, am I? what am I doing wrong where I don't have anyone to talk to at these festivals? Oh but like everyone around me is talking. It's not, that's not bad, though. Sometimes I'll just sit there and look at my phone, but I'm really listening yeah. to people around me. That can be interesting. That's what I'm doing all the time. I, I've seen 20 movies in the past month alone in theaters. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, be wary. That's the saddest story. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't find one person. It, when he says alone in theaters, he means he went to an empty theater 20 yeah. times yep. so he could watch them. Anyway, so I kept hearing people say things like, quote, I had to run to the bathroom because I was sobbing so loud, or, quote, it's the single greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And, yeah, I was, like, surprised about that for a couple of reasons. One is that it's the first feature that Bradley Cooper has ever directed. Two, it features Lady Gaga in the main role, who has never been the lead of a serious feature before, but is a great entertainer. Three, this is the fourth time that the film has been remade. Fourth time. Fourth time. But even with all that in mind, it's gotten some seriously positive buzz. It's currently got a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, as Eric said earlier. And I will say that since the first impressions have died down, I've heard that the first half is a lot more riveting than the second. But it looks like whatever people are saying, this film has the potential to be a big award season player. The film follows Cooper's character, a musician that helps a younger singer and actress, played by Gaga, find fame, even as age and alcoholism send his own career into a downward spiral. Sam Elliott, Dave Chappelle, and Andrew Dykes Clay are also in it, rounding out one of the strangest casts I have ever heard of. I believe Andrew Dykes Clay plays Lady Gaga's father in the movie, wow. too, which is inspired Italian. It's cool. Or, I mean, it's cool Italian. to see all these unorthodox sort of like castings in the in this movie. The fact that Dave Chappelle is back 
and very yeah. quietly back. Yeah. You know? It's pretty cool. And now moving on to grants. The Sundance Documentary Fund has a deadline on October 31st, which is Halloween. A core component of Sundance's documentary film program, this competitive grant looks for artful films about relevant topics, and it can get you $15,000 for development and $40,000 for production or post-production when you have 10 or more minutes to show. The Sundance Documentary Fund provides grants to filmmakers worldwide, and preferences given to projects that convey clear story structure, higher stakes and contemporary relevance, forward-going action or questions, demonstrated access to subjects, and quality use of film craft. All good things for a documentary filmmaker to try and achieve. Now for some festival deadlines. This Friday, October 5th, is the early bird deadline for the Sarasota Film Festival, which takes place from April the 5th through the 14th. Independent and international narratives, docs, and shorts are programmed into a schedule that also features over 100 feature films. Festival events include socially driven parties. Socially driven parties? Oh, I don't like those. I don't like that at oh, all. I gotta stay I away. I like the sound of that. I like the socially awkward <laughs> parties. And private receptions to honor guest filmmakers, community-wide street festivals, and the Black Tie Filmmakers Tribute Dinner. Uh, for whatever reason, NYU students are allowed to submit to the festival for free. Uh, so if you go to NYU, why wouldn't you go to Sarasota? Just supply by the – actually, forget it. You don't even need the early bird deadline. You're in NYU. You could just go for free. Uh, also, the deadline of Monday, October the 8th, is the Big Sky Film Festival. This is the late deadline. And the festival takes place in Missoula, Montana, from February the 15th through the 24th, 2019. The festival hosts over 200 visiting artists, presents an average of 150 nonfiction films, and offers a variety of exciting events throughout town. In addition to screenings, Big Sky hosts Doc Shop, which is a five-day industry event that includes panels, master classes, workshops, and the Big Sky Pitch Session. The Big Sky Documentary Film Festival is an Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences qualifying event also for short-form documentaries. And the winner of the Best Mini Doc and Best Short Documentary categories automatically qualify to compete for a Documentary Short Oscar the following year. So if you're unsure if you're making a short or a mini, apply anyway. And finally, the Julian Dubuque International Film Festival has a deadline on October 8th. This takes place in Dubuque, Iowa from April 24th to the 28th, 2019. It's the early bird deadline, and they award over $40,000 in cash and benefits, including a $10,000 Best of the Fest award. They also pay for the travel and accommodations for the top three nominees of each category. It is one of Mommy's favorite festivals. (laughs) One of Mommy's favorite festivals. (laughs) <laughs> and now for this week's weekly words of wisdom, uh, Ronaldo Marcus Green's debut feature, Monsters and Men, see, we said Monsters was going to be coming up again, opened this past weekend after premiering at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival, where it was picked up for distribution by Neon. Green had previously been at Sundance with his short film, Stop, in 2015, of which his newly released feature is a sublime expansion of. Now, Green is married with two children. He's not a gamer, I don't think. But uh, you should follow him on Instagram to see some very cute pics of his children. Uh, And I chatted with him last week to find out basically uh, how he does it. Because in in my opinion, you don't see a lot of filmmaking parents, filmmakers who are parents, uh, at least not uh, in our current scene. Quote, I do feel lucky that I have a family and I have a constant reminder of keeping perspective. I have mouths to feed, so to speak, and I have a family that I have to take care of. But my son doesn't care about my movie career. He just cares about his dad being home. 
At the end of the day, I have to separate work from family life or I'm not going to have my family. I think it's constant, just trying to find the balance and exploring the things that I like, the things that I'm curious about. I think that's what this whole thing is about. It's being a voice and trying to tell stories that people can connect with. You don't see too many parents doing it, although there are a few of us, such as Eliza Hitman. But I was looking around at my contemporaries, and I'm like, yeah, there are a lot of single men and women doing this. There aren't many parents, at least contemporaries, who are the full-timers. I do feel a little alone sometimes, like I need somebody to talk to about balancing all of this. Maybe Jeremy Saulnier and I should get a beer. It doesn't matter, but I would love to talk to him. Like, how do you guys figure it all out? Um, both of their films screened at the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn last week, so I hope they did get that beer. Um, and so that's the toughest part about filmmaking, how to sustain all this, how to have a career and not a job. I want to make sure that I have a career doing this. Um, and that's something I feel like you don't really hear too much about when you see filmmakers that do have children and are married, and that is very much, this is a job and it is their passion, but the sacrifices that you have to make to have both the personal and professional kind of line up, you usually have to sacrifice. Maybe you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. Um, I don't know, but I just feel like in our contemporary circle, it's it tends to go to the single crowd, right? Or am I just kind of seeing that sadly? Well, no, I, th- I think you're right. Um, you know, I think Charles talked about this, maybe not in terms of relationships, but once you get to a certain point in your filmmaking career, you have to start making some sacrifices and, uh, you know, maybe one of those is a uh, healthy relationship. <laughs> All right. Hey, but you're a successful filmmaker, so who needs it? Yeah. You know, come home to that empty bed at night. Who cares? You can be happy alone. Yeah. Well, that's what they say. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> on that note, uh, you got any shout outs? With- I, I don't really have any shout outs. Uh, I, I'm going to be hopefully an uncle in the next few days. Yeah. Uh, so shout out. To, to to that shout out to that unborn child shout out the, a star will really be born yeah and her first words will be gaga <laughs> nice thank you that's it <laughs> that's our that's our show this week uh i'm john fusco now you can follow uh no film school of course at no film school and be sure to go online and check out the article that's associated with this post so you can read all the stuff we've mentioned on the show and also check out all the other great material we have on no film school i am john fusco you can follow me at Jim underscore John underscore Jim on Twitter. I let you say it because I think if we're all single, we need to get people to follow us. Yeah. Maybe talk and make some new relationships. Uh, And I'm at Eric Lures. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.